0: Before we get started, a quick disclosure this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangeley. With me, as always, my co host and Rangeley's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Monday, October 3rd, and today our episode is all about complaining. We're going to start by talking about Salesforce complaining about the LinkedIn Microsoft deal, and then we'll move on to Harvard's editorial board complaining about the endowment's performance. So, Chris, let's start with LinkedIn, Microsoft. Uh, just some background: We mentioned the LinkedIn deal on our June 14th podcast, uh, and you know, LinkedIn found itself in a bidding more with uh, between Microsoft and Salesforce. Microsoft ultimately won, but it, it kind of turned strange after there. The the background documents reveal Salesforce just LinkedIn kept saying, "Hey, I think we're going to go with someone else," and Salesforce just kept raising their bid. Microsoft ultimately won, and then LinkedIn or Salesforce sent LinkedIn an email that said, "Hey." We would have bid even more for you. You just we didn't know that we were competing or what the price we were looking to pay was. But we would have kept going up. Why did you, why did you stop negotiating? Uh, well, now LinkedIn and Microsoft they're really only waiting on European regulators to clear the deal, and then it will close. U.S. regulators have already cleared it, uh, and Salesforce is actually lobbying in complaints to the European regulator to try to prevent the deal, maybe delay it, prevent it, do something. So. Chris, what do you think about the tactic of Salesforce protesting the deal to regulators? Do you think this has any chance of impacting the deal? Kind of it's a strange strategy. Have you seen it before? Let's talk about it.
1: Well, it's much easier to impact, throw a wrench kind of in the process than in the ultimate conclusion. So let me start at the end. It's a $196 deal, it's an ironclad definitive merger agreement. Um, When there are multiple bidders, it tends to result in tight deal contracts. It certainly did here. Um, The ARB spread right now is about $4.12, 12% 12 IRR to a close in December. I think the deal is going to be able to be closed. Um, If you want to look at a contract verbiage, uh, the company material adverse change uh, section, the material adverse effect language, and you want to judge it in two seconds, glance at how short the mat clause is and how long the carve-outs are. This is a short section and long carve-out. I think the deal is going to get done. Do I think they're going to be able to push the EU into an extended phase two? Nope, I don't think they're going to get to do that either. As you said, it's, it's been approved already in Brazil, the U.S., and Canada. Uh, Mark uh 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 mark uh Uh, Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, tried to complain in the U.S., didn't really get traction. And um, I think that they will fail to get it extended. I think if necessary, they can just do a phase one licensing fix if that's even necessary. Uh, He's right that the EU competition commissioner has really been concerned with concentrated databases. Maybe this qualifies. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, Salesforce's fix, of course, is to have Microsoft uh, buy LinkedIn and then share its data with. Salesforce. I mean, in theory, Oracle, too, but it would really be Salesforce. Uh, So you you could just pay off the mugger if you wanted to and close the deal. Um, And I I think this is just, you know, he didn't just lose. He was used by LinkedIn uh, and Catalyst, their advisor, to really kind of get them involved, very much to squeeze out the top dollar from Microsoft. They got another $2 billion or so, knowing that their client, LinkedIn, did not want equity from Salesforce.
0: Yeah. So I think there, there's a couple of interesting things. And, and the one I want to dive into is, you know, Microsoft could, could stop Salesforce's, most of Salesforce's complaining if they just license all the data that they're getting from LinkedIn. But if they did that, that would kill the strategic rationale of the deal, right? Both Microsoft and Salesforce wanted LinkedIn for all of that unique customer data on people's professional resumes that they were getting. And, uh, you know, I, I have to wonder, Is this the start of kind of a, not even a cold war, a a hot war between Salesforce and Microsoft? Look, since the LinkedIn deal closed, Salesforce bought a Microsoft Word uh, competitor, and then Microsoft put out a press release announcing that they'd... they had signed a deal with HP to replace Salesforce for their customer management uh, stuff. They signed a partnership with Adobe to compete with Salesforce on marketing software. And Salesforce signed a deal to switch their uh, cloud web hosting from Microsoft Azure to their big competitor, Amazon's AWS. So I have to wonder if this is actually the start of a all out war between Microsoft and Salesforce, and if it is, you know how that plays out for how that plays out for Salesforce, and I'll let you take the first crack at it. A-
1: absolutely, I, I think that most CEOs are often very smart, but they also got there by being very competitive. And then in a deal environment, that competitive streak that's so common to CEOs, such as the Salesforce CEO, is then also amped up by their equally competitive Goldman Sachs bankers that kind of egg them on to win. And uh, when they don't, I think that the kind of uh, competitive streak uh, has kind of run a little wild and the animal spirits here are uh, being competitive in a sort of adversarial way uh, on both sides, maybe especially Salesforce. Yeah,
0: and I wanted to dive into the the competitive spirits a little too because I thought it was interesting, you know, One of the reasons a lot of people think Steve Ballmer kind of didn't succeed and was ultimately ousted as CEO of Microsoft was Microsoft was unable to partner with any other tech company doing almost anything. Mm -hmm. And I actually saw some quotes where Salesforce's CEO said, look, if Balmer could have partnered with us on a couple things, he'd still be here, but he couldn't. And the great thing about Satya Nadella, who is now Microsoft CEO, the great thing about him is he understands the power of these partnerships and he's able to partner with other companies. Uh, and now Salesforce's CEO is coming out and tweeting that Microsoft's deal for LinkedIn is uncompetitive, throwing in uh, lobs at the European regulators that say this deal is uncompetitive. Is his ego kind of getting in the way and he's unable to work with other CEOs, you know, Salesforce is not a tech giant like Google, Facebook, or Microsoft. They are much smaller. And if he can't partner with them, he might kind of be, they might kind of be left behind in this battle between the big uh, tech giants.
1: Absolutely. And for what it's worth, I think that competition commissions should look at competitor complaints as being pro-competitive, not anti-competitive. If your competitors hate what you're up to, you're probably serving your customers well.
0: Yep. And the last thing I wonder, you know, Two, three years ago, Salesforce has relied very heavily on a growth model, right? Mm-hmm. We, we talked about this in a couple of our prior podcasts. They do deals. They do a lot of them. And sometimes the street questions their deals. But to date, the street has been wrong for every deal that they've questioned. But, you know, the deals that you're doing when you're kind of a million-dollar company are, do not move the needle when you're a billion-dollar company. And Salesforce is now like a 20-billion-plus-dollar company. That means they're competing with Microsoft, Google, Google. Uh, Facebook for all of these deals, you know, they lost to Microsoft for LinkedIn, they're probably going to lose to Google for Twitter, or else they're probably going to have to massively overpay because these companies have much bigger platforms, much more financial resources, much more synergies to buy these companies. So I I wonder if Salesforce is kind of seeing the writing on the wall that the future is going to be a little bit bleaker, uh, unless their competitors have their hands tied behind their back when they're looking at acquisitions.
1: Maybe it is. I followed Salesforce deals for a very long time. I can think of no company... That has increased its market cap as much as Salesforce's has done relative to how skeptical I've been of their deal making and prices they pay. Mm-hmm. I mean they just a uh, serial acquirer and deals that at the time, you know, you know, I I guess I can look back and say it's worked out much better than I would have expected. Yeah.
0: yeah, the the last thing I guess I would think is, you know, since the news that they bid on LinkedIn and are considering bids on Twitter has come out, Salesforce's shares are down 15%. While, you know, since May, we've talked about it endlessly on this podcast. Uh, tech stocks have been on a huge bull market driven a lot by a lot of private equity and strategic interest and buying them I have to wonder if investors are starting to question like is this the end for their accretive deal making I'll I'll give you the last thoughts for 10 seconds if you want to
1: uh, I think the the advisors should just get uh, Microsoft to launch some kind of bid for Twitter, and they will be able to get Mark Benioff to pay anything for it whatsoever.
0: <laughs> get that ego going. All right, so Chris, let's turn to the Harvard Endowment. Mm-hmm. So we discussed the Harvard Endowment and its struggles with hanging on to top talent a little bit in our August 8th podcast. And last week, the Harvard's editorial board actually sent a letter calling the Endowment subpar returns quote, quote, unacceptable. Uh, this was after it lost two billion dollars in its fiscal year 2016 and failed to match kind of peer Ivy League schools returns. Uh, just as an example, Yale's endowment was up three point four percent over the same time frame while their endowment dropped two percent. Uh, so Harvard's board, editorial board said it was unacceptable and called on the school to look at all ways to increase returns. Uh, so, Chris, let's have a discussion. What do you think about this? How can Harvard's endowment increase returns?
1: Well, you know, first of all, uh, I, I saw this piece uh, in The Crimson and uh, the headline was The Urgency of the Present. And I thought this could be written by millennials on any topic whatsoever this could be Pokemon Go this could be getting their parents to send them more money this is just the moment that they live in is just so much harder than anything that came before or after and these you know, Harvard kids are just the victims of the century if not the millennium Uh, and in this case it's because they're down to $36 billion amongst the 29,000 of them if they liquidated today that would be $1.2 million per kid uh, that they would have to suffer uh, under uh, and uh, They're just uh, in a a wrenching gloom over this. Mm -hmm.
0: So, look, I 100% agree. And the $1.2 million is so funny. You know, all these schools that are constantly – they've become – more kind of uh, fundraising arms with schools attached yeah. to them. It's crazy to have that big of an endowment and to say, we need bigger returns. We need more money and, to constantly go fundraising. Go ahead. And, and money's
1: supposed to hold value, but it's also supposed to force trade-offs. And when you have that amount of money, you have no trade-offs. So, yeah. I mean, they would probably be more competently managed if they had a half or maybe even a tenth the size uh, endowment. Uh, but what are they supposed to do? I mean, I think that these uh, Harvard students are like CEOs. They're highly competitive. They're clearly very Upset uh, that they are losing to Penn, Princeton, Yale, MIT, and even Columbia. I mean, these some of these schools that are just barely Ivy Leagues kind of are, are crushing them, and uh, and I think that this is deeply upsetting. Uh, but uh, but it's not clear uh, what tools they have to move such a big number.
0: But I, I think you said something astute there, or I think you said multiple astute things there. I think the problem is divided into two problems. Mm-hmm. There is the problem with endowments generally, mm-hmm. and then there is a problem with Harvard's endowments specifically. And the problem with endowments generally is these endowments are huge now. They are, you know, they had fantastic returns in the early 90s. And we talked about this on our August 8th podcast. And a lot of that was driven by there wasn't much competition in the private equity and hedge fund worlds. So they had fantastic returns because they were smaller with less competition. But now a lot of that has been efficient market arbitraged away. Mm -hmm. So their returns have come down as their size has grown and their strategies have gotten more, more, uh, More picked over. So that is the efficiency problem with what has happened with them. Then there is the, oh, and just on the efficiency problem, you know, over the past year, the best uh, performer was Yale's endowment, which gained 3.4%. But if you were in a simple stock bond portfolio, you would have made 4.8%. So you're underperforming very simple index funds. So there's that efficiency problem as they've grown. The, the Harvard's go ahead I'll let.
1: And, and if only Yale had underperformed by more Harvard would be perfectly happy they just need <laughs> yeah. to be they, they just need to they just need Yale to have lost I mean the, the funny thing about this maudlin melodrama is five minutes ago or so or last time I checked um when performance was stellar, they were complaining that successful money managers at their endowment with aligned incentives were getting highly compensated. Yep. So, how, uh, you know, and, and since we looked at this, uh, the new chief has been appointed, uh, NP uh, uh, Narvekar, and uh, he has a 100% chance of getting attacked because he's going to underperform, or if uh, by God, he outperforms and gets paid for it, he's going to get attacked for that too. So I mean, that is a a tough job to be left.
0: And and that's exactly where it's going to go. The the other issue is a Harvard specific issue. You are underperforming peers. And I think a big part of it is you. Harvard has been unique in attacking the payouts of their uh, top management. In Mm -hmm. fact, Yale, David Swenson was very highly rewarded for running Yale's uh, endowment very successfully. And I don't really remember a lot of pushback for how much money he was making when he was outperforming markets. And Harvard's case, look, they had investment talent, they criticized the pay package, and maybe investment talent is happy to work at Harvard when they're getting paid 95 percent of their worth on the private market because it's their endowment and it comes with social benefits. But if you're trying to cut them down to 10 percent, they're just going to leave and go elsewhere. And I I think that's a huge problem with Harvard.
1: I I think the new guy should definitely drive a Prius, not spend any of the money he makes, draw attention to anything that he consumes. And then he should also try to sabotage (laughs) Yale, because if they can just somehow manage to hurt Yale, I think this whole thing will uh, calm down. But I mean, how do you move tens of billions of dollars like that i mean there's nothing that we do professionally that you could scale up at that size that is kind of edgy actionable mispriced that the market's Mm -hmm. missing it's just basically broadly allocating to exposures and uh like we said you know the 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 yale model is something that was a specific time in history where that was mispriced and that's done
0: you know the, the other thing is if you are going to get criticism for underperforming yale there there is one solution that i there is one solution to this whole issue that harvard can Consider, and that is just go ahead and outsource your endowment management over to Yale. I, I, yeah. I don't see why they don't do that. I, I would, I think they absolutely should do that.
1: And there's a lot of other good uh, business uh, options. You know, you can sell Chotskys, you can sell all sorts of Harvard related things. My favorite thing, just to hark back to LinkedIn for a minute, is when people prominently put Harvard degrees on LinkedIn that are not real degrees, but are yeah. kind of like long weekend seminars yeah, at Harvard, yeah. and then they kind of like, yes uh Meath, uh kind of a Harvard uh, executive weekend program and they put this there and i think that's a very bearish sign for available talent but clearly people pay for these things yeah. I, mean, I think it's kind of thousands of dollars for a few days so they just need to um they need to sell out i mean they need to they have a good name they have a good name brand and i think they just can crank a lot of value for that and uh, get back on top
0: you know if you deal I, I deal a lot with small caps and especially with small caps that are kind of family controlled a lot of time you will see like, you know, the the CEO's son is getting groomed to take over the CEO's spot and they'll put in his bio, you know, he went to the local community college, but, you know, he's getting groomed. And he also took a long executive weekend course at Harvard. So they'll say he's the perfect managerial role. He's graduated from Harvard's business school for a weekend, which uh, I, I just love. And it does speak to the power of the, the power of the Harvard brand name. Uh, so, Chris, unless you have anything, why don't we wrap it up here? Great. So that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, the best way to get more of them is to recommend us to a friend and get them to start listening. Uh, Disclosures, none for me. Chris, you're writing that you own LinkedIn, I think that is. All right. So Chris owns a little bit of LinkedIn. Those are our disclosures and we will talk to you later this week.